So this is the final film. Let me start that over. This is the... No, I guess that's a good way. This is the final film done under the old way, because this was actually supposed to be a Phase 2 film. So pretty much all of the script and production and all that, and pre-production stuff was done back in Phase 2. But they really, really wanted Benedict Cumberbatch to play Strange. Like, they were so committed to this that they actually pushed the release date and production of this film back several years. Studios don't do that. I am astonished they actually pulled that off for this one. But as if you watched my Disney Renaissance series, you'll know, you know, films are kind of made like this. So things, e even though the previous film was technically the last film done underneath, you know, Perlmutter, this film is actually the last one done under Perlmutter, even though it actually came out after the previous one. It's, it's a whole thing, okay? Because this film originally, 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 originally started its life in 1986. I'm not even kidding about that one, by the way. This film has been bounced around for years until finally Marvel picked it back up for their thing. Now, I just want to go ahead and uh, go down the list here. I wrote it down. Check this out. Started off with New World, went to Regency. Then I went to Warner Brothers, who was actually ready to go. They were finally going to make it. This is like the 90s at this point. But unfortunately, Warner Brothers was in the middle of a legal dispute with Marvel at the time, so that didn't go anywhere. They then sold it to Savoy Pictures, who sold it to Columbia Pictures, who sold it to Dimension, who sold it to Miramax, who sold it to Paramount. Now, if you're paying attention to this path, each of these is several years apart. That takes us into the early aughts, like about 2006 or so, I believe. And, if, and that's important because initially it's like, yeah, okay, you can kind of see why some relatively smaller name companies did it. But if you were, again, paying attention during the Disney stuff I just checked, the 90s is when superhero films started being acceptable again. Like, publicly acceptable and critically acceptable. All of a sudden it was okay for superhero films to be things that, you know, major... Uh, directors, producers, writers, and actors actually worked on. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. That would then explain why it bounced so quickly. Because, see, see, if you're paying attention, New World, Regency, and Warner Brothers, that wasn't a chain of purchases. That's just where the rights were going. And then each of them were just like, eh. And then over to Savoy. But then people started buying the rights. Oh, my God, yes, I want to make a, a superhero film. But, of course, if you pay attention to the path, Columbia, Dimension, Miramax, Paramount, with the exception of the last one, each of those were just kind of like, not very large studios, which is probably why they're buying the, buying the rights to something like Doctor Strange rather than something like X-Men. Not that Fox is letting go of X-Men anytime soon. <laughs> Sorry, I have to laugh about that one. Or Spider-Man, which Sony has been gripping with an iron fist ever since. Now, <laughs> what's funny is after all of this, Paramount didn't make the film, mostly because they had conflicting issues at the time, and they eventually finally defaulted. Now, when rights, distribution rights or licensing rights like this default, that means they revert to the person who gave them. This is actually why the Amazing Spider-Man film, the first one with Andrew Garfield, I think, was, was made. was specifically so those rights would stay with Sony. Yes, they made an entire film just to ensure that their licensing rights didn't expire. But because Paramount didn't do anything with Doctor Strange, they reverted back to Marvel. And Marvel's like, hey... And, of course, when they started pushing together this whole MCU thing, Strange was in consideration many times. Now, after the Phase 1 
the amazing blah, success of Doom, quite a few people were suddenly very interested in working on MCU works. And all of this stuff was planned out years in advance, so they knew the MCU uh, Phase 2 and Phase 3 were coming to some extent or another. And there was one person in particular, I hope I'm going to say his name correctly, Scott Derrickson, who really really wanted to work on a Doctor Strange film. It was something that he threw himself into at his own expense in order to try and make sure that he could impress Marvel enough. And he kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and after repeated auditions and attempts to sell it, they were finally like, okay. And I do think he was a good choice. He takes, he has an unusual take on a superhero film since he's a horror director. Now, this is funny because I saw an interview of his where he said how nice it is to do something. You know, he's, he's been doing dark stuff for so long, it's nice to kind of get out of that and do something nice. Um, the next film he's doing is called uh, Doctor Strange, The Multiverse of Madness, which is supposed to be a horror film. So, I also want to say that we have an excellent cast in this one. We have uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, Tilda, Tilda Swinton, excuse me, um, Rachel McAdams, and Mads Mikkelsen. They brought out a lot of star power for this one, and it makes sense why. After all, well, how do I phrase this as nicely as I can? Most people don't know who Doctor Strange is. I've kind of mentioned this before, and if you paid attention last week, I commented on this regarding Black Panther. And Black Panther has a little bit more public conscious awareness than Doctor Strange, so this was really branching out, and they really wanted to be like, okay, look, this is who he is, please come to the film. Although it's probably worth noting that that was uh, an, I, uh, a mentality that wasn't necessary in the wake of Guardians of the Galaxy. Because Guardians of the Galaxy is like one of the most random, off-the-wall, nobody's-ever-heard-of-it things ever, and they turned it into that. <laughs> I heard a joke once that was basically, the Guardians of the Galaxy is just, yeah, we're just, we're just doing whatever at this point. We're going to make a film about a talking raccoon, and you're going to love it, damn it. Anyways, <clears throat> so, film proper. Uh, before I get going, I want to mention that there is a very, very, very overt motif of time in this. How overt? Well, usually when I see recurring motifs, I like to have a little thing where I just keep track of each time it happens in order to help talk about it when I'm going through the rumination. I stop keeping track after the twelfth iteration. That's, that's, a, that's a bit much. There are constant references to time and the concepts and presentations of time throughout the course of the film. The most obvious one being, of course, the broken watch that he keeps around, but it's it's a non-stop thing. So I'm just going to comment on that and, and mention it when I think it's actually relevant, rather than pointing out every single time uh, that it happens. You know, where are the defenses in the library? Wong comes across as pretty badass, and that's probably because he is. But the previous librarian, who he was the replacement for, apparently was just like, hey, what's going on? Oh, no, and then his head's chopped off. Like, I, I hate to say this, but they get away with that a little bit too easily. They also don't take the whole book. They just take a few pages from the book. Which is funny for two reasons. First, it, it clues in the heroes to their plan, but second, it means they don't get the warnings. Anyways... <clears throat> Now I'm going to go and just say this once. The special effects in this film are really, really good. Like, mind-blowingly, amazingly good. 
because it's not just it's 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 hard to probably explain if you haven't seen it. Of course, if you're watching this rumination, you know that I have seen the film and you know what I'm talking about. They do a wonderful pattern of terrain folding in on itself and creating a sort of mirror fractal with the same thing in a repeating pattern. And there's a flow to it, which of course refers to the river, which I will be bringing up several times, which of course itself refers to the river of time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to come up a lot, like I said, but I, I'm going to bring it up when I think it's relevant, because the way they show these special effects really does get across that idea of just this flow. Pay attention next time you see them, anytime when they're doing battle or whatever in the mirror dimension, and tell me it doesn't look like they're running through or, or navigating a rapids. Obviously not literally, but you get my point. So, we cut to Dr. Strange, who is a surgeon who is really good at what he does. Now, there's this bit where she says you didn't have to humiliate him. When did, she, when did he humiliate him? Like, he asked him to cover his watch, which, I mean, near as I can tell, he actually did need to concentrate that hard, because what he was doing was insanely difficult. <laughs> like, really. Anyways, Strange early on is hard to get a finger on because he's not actually a jerk. He's just incredibly egotistical. Which, you might be like, well, that sounds like a jerk. Well, no. He obviously still does care, and he's still affable and amiable. Uh, probably the best example of this is actually a really understated scene, which is important for his character, because after he, he helps save the man's life, uh, she goes, you know, Christine goes, Palmer, I think. Paul, Dr. Palmer goes, Nurse Palmer? And you know, is, is telling the family, one of them comes up to hug him, and he's just like, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. And he just hugs right back. Like, there's there's an, there's an a, I hate to say charming, because that's the wrong word. It's more like there is a friendly demeanor to him. That's probably important, because it helps distinguish him from Tony Stark. Now, let's just go and say this once really quick. I know that people like to compare Doctor Strange to Tony Stark. I don't. I think that any comparisons between the two are superficial and don't actually do justice to either character or actor my opinion. So this is the one and only time I'm going to make that comparison. And the only reason I'm doing so here is because I think this was part of the point. They were trying to show that he was a better person at the start of his journey than Stark was. Stark started off kind of a dick. Self-interested, self-absorbed. He went through hell and he came out of it with the better of himself. Strange actually does the opposite in a way. He starts off as a nice person, goes through hell, and becomes a horrible human being as a consequence and then gets better later. <laughs> but not because of the horrible stuff he goes through, just because he has had enough time to distance himself from it, which has allowed him time to think, which has allowed him time to come to grips with who and what he is, which leads to him becoming a better person. Side note, I wonder if Christine's going to be in the second film. Anyways. <sighs> then he drives recklessly. And when I say recklessly, I mean, there was one time... I shouldn't even say this. There was one time when I was driving home. It was out in the middle of nowhere. No other, no other cars because of the route I took uh, home from work. And I was driving just a little bit over the speed limit. I was driving a bit recklessly. And as I'm driving around, or not above the speed limit, sorry, that's not what I mean. I wasn't actually driving above the speed limit. What I was driving is faster than I should have been, sorry. Because the relevant point here is that it was pouring rain and there was ice on the road. So instead of driving nice and cautiously, I was driving at normal speed, which was like 30 miles an hour. So, now I survived that night. <laughs> a 
What I was doing that night, which is relatively mild, I'm not, I mean, the car was fine afterwards. It, it took a few bumps. I had to busk a few things out, and I was a little injured, but overall, everything turned out fine, fortunately. That was just me going 30. He's driving around at what looks like about 80-ish. In the rain, at night, on an ed, uh, I forget the proper term for it, but it's, it's a road with, with, you know, it's just drop-off, right? Drop-off road, or whatever the proper term is for it. This isn't reckless driving. This is insanity. And as weird as this may sound, this is probably one of the weakest parts of the film for me. I get that he's egotistical, uh, but this isn't ego. This is stupidity. Like flagrant, blind stupidity. Oh, by the way, on top of driving too fast, in the rain, at night, on a dangerous road, he also takes his eyes off the road. He is damned lucky to be alive and able to walk. So his hands are gone. There goes his fame, career, identity. And he's like, no, I'll, I'll do it. I'll push for any solution. Well, we have what follows is not quite a montage, but still serves the purpose of a montage. And if you pay attention, every time we see his apartment, including the first time, it's less... Like, like, it starts off wonderfully set up, and then it's clearly less in it, and then even less. And we just get the obvious distinction that he has been selling off everything he owns in order to try and repair his hands, which uh, hasn't been working out for him. Because, well, I mean, honestly, Christine said this right off the bat. He, he had so much nerve damage, and it took them too long to even find him. Point in fact, ironically enough, the fact that he was on a phone call at the time is probably the only reason anyone knew to even look for him. Yeah. Now, here's a question for you. Why do you think he pushes himself so hard on this point? Later on, the Ancient One says that he's afraid of failure. I've heard some people say it's because he can't st stand the idea of losing his identity, which is an understandable thing. I've heard some people say it's because it's his ego. He can't stand, you know, being like a teacher, for example, or anything other than what he was, which was the absolute best doctor in the world. That he pushed himself so hard and so strong to be the best that he couldn't withstand the idea of being anything else. In fact, one of my geekier friends actually compared him to Captain Kirk. Hear me out. And the off chance you don't know who he is, then just bow out of this particular part of the video because it's not gonna, I'm not going to bother explaining it. But the idea is that someone like Kirk, if something happened to prevent him from being in command, from being the captain, then it's pretty reasonable that Kirk would go through everything he has to to get back to being captain. Because that's his tetra slot. I don't know what else to call it. That's where he belongs. That's where he fits. Yes, that, go... Because it's been his ambition and dream, and he's pushed and, and, and struggled for his entire life. Now, <clears throat> the interesting part is this film seems to make it out as if Strange is doing a similar thing. As ever, I'm curious of your guys' thoughts on why you think he pushes so hard for this. But the problem is, unlike Kirk, he becomes a worse person. I already referenced this earlier. He becomes a pretty horrible person. Now, it's pretty clear based on the film that everything he says is nothing he actually means. That he is just ranting and raging out of grief and loss and anger. And, well, that's not... It doesn't make it... It doesn't make it right. But it does make it better. In short, he doesn't actually mean anything he's saying. Because, well... 
he's uh he's lost it basically so he goes to talk to the guy who's constantly casting heal self six and cure moderate runes self six anyways um do you think he actually believes or do you think he's just that desperate i've heard a lot of people disagree on this point over the years there is one other point. Now, I actually do like this story quite a lot, and I found myself laughing and enjoying it many times, even this playthrough, or watch-through. Run-through? But I do have to say, there's the, there's the bit where Mordo says, forget everything you think you know, and God, I'm just sick of hearing that. I know they were going for Matrix parallels. I get it, but Jesus. Sorry. It's it's just, it's a huge pet peeve of mine when people use that line in fiction. Forget everything you think you know. Okay, that's nice. Can we keep going? So, he, uh, <laughs> so Strange gets involved with a little altercation. You notice he, this, he loses this fight miserably, just keep that in mind for later. And he goes and talks to Tilda Swinton. Now, let me go ahead and say something controversial. I think she was a good pick for the Ancient One. Yeah, I know. I know the points. I do. But for me, the quality of the actor or actress matters more than uh, anything else, actually. And so in this case, I think this worked really well because she's a really good actress. I'll always remember her... Well, I'll probably remember her as the Ancient One more than anything else going forward. But I'll always remember her from Constantine. If you ever see that film, it's the Keanu Reeves Constantine. If you haven't... That's well, a bit of a mind trip, but it's actually a really good look at the Constantine mythos. So if you're a fan, I, I recommend looking into it. She's in that. I'm not going to spoil who or what. You'll see it. Anyways, she has a wonderful scene where she is obviously being just on the edge of polite with someone that she knows is coming at it from a completely external perspective and doesn't believe what she says. She has a very fascinating technique of discussing with him, because first she talks to him at his level, talking about the very nature of cellular... Re uh, regeneration, leading to literal cellular regeneration, and then she talks about spirit. Now, in, in, if you're not catching this, she starts off light and then hits him metaphorically with this point. And then she goes back to okay, well, how about this? And she shows a diagram of some, you know, chi thing, and then she shows a diagram of like a chakra thing, and then she shows an MRI scan. She has actually, it's actually relatively brilliant the way she tries to reach out to Strange. And she is trying to reach out to him and, and get his point here and make him understand. You'll also notice that thanks to her perceiving time and future things, she's probably already well aware of who he is and what he is, considering she already knew who he was all the way back in Avengers 1. <clears throat> Anyways, we'll get there. But yeah, and so then she gives him the drug trip. Now, I just want to comment on this briefly. As much as I praise the special effects of this film, this one section I don't care for, and I know I'm not alone in that. In fact, uh, one of the people I went to the film with in the theaters had to basically just do this and be like, tell me when it's over, because it was so fast and so rapid-fire and so dizzy-inducing that it was literally physically painful to look at. I have to admit, you guys know I have headache problems. I had to kind of just do this and look at my notes while I was you know, going through this section, because it's like, okay... Unlike most of the other stuff, which is beautifully rendered and designed, this is basically just an acid trip. Ask Stan Lee, he'll tell you about it. <clears throat> so, I say acid trip. Is, is acid a hallucinogenic? I actually don't know. This is a hallucinogenic trip. 
This is also when we introduce the concept of the multiverse. Now, believe it or not, this is one of the biggest reasons this film got made right here was the introduction of the multiverse, because it's something they wanted to do for some time. Kevin Feige himself had thrown a lot of support behind this idea. I don't know what to say to that. You guys know me. I don't like multiverses. I don't like multiple timelines. Shrug. As long as it's done within reason, I don't mind. And we haven't seen that much yet. But we're about to, since Lord knows Loki's off doing one. Actually, I suppose by the time this video goes live, the Loki show will have also gone live. Anywho, <clears throat> this is then where, <laughs> sorry, this is where they, they kick him out, and she pretends she's not going to train him. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Mordo talks about natural law here. I only point that out because on repeat viewing, this re viewing, it's made much more clear that Mordo is far more believing in the rigidity of this is what must be. This is the proper way of things. And everything he says and everything he does gets that across. Now, I've said this before. But Mr. Ajiafor is actually an actor I really like. I talked about him, uh, I guess, last year at this point, during the uh, Serenity film. And he did a really good job there. He's an excellent actor. He throws himself completely into the role. And he does a very good job of the intensity of Mordo and the personality of Mordo with a morally good-aligned ethics kind of grafted onto it, which actually makes for a nice... Uh, twist on things. I admit the first time I, I knew he was mortal, I thought he was the villain of the thing, because of course I did, right? And then it's like, wait, he's he's the mentor? He's the buddy? What? But again, on repeat viewing, it makes sense. He's already got the mindset of what will become the villain, just he's not evil yet. Just interesting to think about. I also want to say, I actually really like their definition of magic. You, uh, they were really big on no incantations. Instead, it was all about, uh, is this somatic? I can't remember the name of the different components. There's like somatic components and then there's something else components. But anyways, it's gestures. It's the specific gestures that enables you to cast something. And she talks of it as if it is specifically tapping into uh, the program of reality. And thus, what they are doing is effectively running a program every time they do that, which actually makes a lot of sense, and I'll come back to the point in a minute. Then we see Wong, who's awesome. By the way, Wong is played by Benedict Wong. I'm not joking. <laughs> he does a great job of the role, though. He is exactly as you know strict and, and severe and comical as he needs to be. You'll also notice he pick, he takes a liking to Strange very quickly, despite his demeanor. And I really like his tidbit where he's like, Do you know Sanskrit? Uh, yes, I am versed in, in Google Translate. <laughs> Every now and again, I wonder how much these references cost Marvel and Disney, because I mean, cause that's how that works, right? So this is when she brings up, for the first obvious time, the river analogy. You can't beat a river into submission. You have to use its flow. Now, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before. This is, this is going to be a small tangent, but I've actually gone river rapidings a few times in my life. This is much younger, obviously, I, before the leg incident. And one of the biggest things I learned was uh, the ways you're supposed to try and deal with the, the water if you happen to fall in. And the biggest one was cover your head. <laughs> But the second biggest one was you have to try and go with the water and use the flow of the river rather than trying to fight it. If you just try to swim upstream, you're screwed. If you try to swim cross-stream, you're probably screwed as well. 
And of course, the biggest danger is the rocks on the way and all sorts of other stuff like that. But the relevant point is I, that analogy has stuck with me for a long time because it is applicable in a lot of ways in real life. See, the idea here, taken into an abstract, is you can't defeat the river. You have to transform the river. In other words, you have to change the parameters of victory and approach it laterally instead, which is one of the biggest themes, if not the biggest theme of this entire film, approaching things laterally. So, <clears throat> she pushes him. I like this scene. There are two scenes with her where she is very, very human. And this is one of the reasons I like Tilda Swinton here, because she comes across as like the almost mercurial, you know, just on the edge of uh, kind of ancient master thing. But, but, there are two very powerful scenes where she's just a human being. And the way she's just... No, no, he'll come, he'll come through a few more... Any second now. And, she's, and we see her hand, and she's just nervously twirling that fan, like, come on. Like, you could just feel that uncertainty there as she's not sure if she did the right thing. And, and there's this really subtle, but her entire body posture just sort of relaxes when he comes through. Like, she doesn't actually do an open smile, but you can see the relief. Okay, he made it, he made it. So, nice little metaphor. Earlier he tried to shave with a straight edge, which is, for those of you not aware who are not men, uh, this is, that's actually one of the hardest ways to shave. You can get used to it. I am not, I actually use just typical razors. But a straight edge, uh, that requires precise hand movements. So this time he actually just uses a tool to do it, accepting that he can't do what he wanted to the way he wanted to, so trying to approach it from a different angle. I have to mention the Beyonce joke, because that was hysterical. Beyonce, oh come on, you know who Beyonce is, just give me the book. And then Wong is listening to a Beyonce song. Note that her powers often tend to mirror the dark thing, you know, the the, the mirror kind of uh, collapsing in on itself thing. Very minor point that gives it away a little early. Strange, of course, develops really, really quickly. This is probably one of the other narrative weaknesses of the film, because Strange comes across as someone who is basically, well, a chosen one in the classic narrative sense. He is automatically good at what he was chosen to do, because he's the chosen one. That's why he can do it so well. And I feel that diminishes his character slightly. The film tries to portray it as that he's very, very smart and he has a perfect photographic memory, but they actually point out that that doesn't explain how he can interact with certain magical things the way he can. In short, he's the chosen one. It's a bit of a shame, but I have to admit there's not a lot of other ways to write through that. You either have a massive montage and have him actually getting older, and that means everything before this would have de-aging uh, makeup and or technology. Or you, you make him really, really good and he gets through training quickly. I mean, there's not a lot of options there if you're going to show an origin story. And they did want to show an origin story. So, one of the last origin stories we see in the MCU, if I'm not mistaken. No, that's not true. Uh, Captain Marvel. We still see that one. Anyways, so then he interacts with relics. Now, this is a neat one, because relics are basically enchantments. Dragon Age joke, we're walking, we're walking. And enchantments are a way of, think of them as magical batteries. They even explain it this way. They sustain the power cost so that we don't have to. We already know that that little bright, sparking, kind of flame, electric-looking thing, that's astral energy. That is literally direct soul magic, right? So, 
Obviously, anytime they do those kind of spells, it takes from them to do so. So having an item that has power that's been imbued into it so it can do it without, that makes perfect sense. Now, this then leads to the Orb of Agamotto. <laughs> I have to admit, the first time I saw that, I actually did a, a small... Because I didn't even know the Time Stone was going to be in this one. And Sis was like, what's that, what's that? I was like, that's the Time Stone. Oh my god. Oh yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> right? Anyways. <clears throat> and naturally, as he's using the... Effortlessly using one of the most powerful relics in the entire world... He uses it on an apple. Get it? Forbidden fruit. There's also this nice little bit about warnings before the spell, but they then point out the nature of the sorcerer's sanctums, the three sanctums which help to maintain the defenses on Earth against dimensional invasion. I only point this out because this is surprisingly logical, and the film never draws attention to this. It just kind of lays it there and lets you put it together. Magic is a program. It requires a specific set of inputs in order to accomplish an effect. Relics are batteries for magic, enabling them to accomplish magical ends in a way that doesn't take from your personal power. Thus, the sanctums are the logical conclusion of these two points. They are effectively very large-scale relics, constantly channeling magic into maintaining the barrier around Earth at all times. I think that's really cool, personally. And makes perfect sense. And I want to pause on that point for a moment and praise this film. As I was reading the interviews, I saw multiple references to Harry Potter. Now, all of those references were done in the same way. They weren't derogatory per se, but the implication was that Harry Potter doesn't explain its magic. Or perhaps, let me, let me actually say that more accurately, uh, Harry Potter is I inconsistent internally with regards to its magic. Now, we could go into the whys and wherefores of that, and Lord knows the movies are actually worse about that than the books, but the point remains, Harry Potter magic is self-inconsistent. What they wanted was to make something that made very much more sense, so when they sat down to write this film, they actually did sit down with Feige and several of the other large-scale uh, MCU writers, and were like, okay, we need to write the rules of magic for the MCU, and there needs to be a cohesive set of laws and rules and how it works, so let's go, and... That led to the way they explained it in this film. So I just thought, I wanted, I wanted to give praise for that, that's all. Especially since this is technically the first time straight-up magic has been introduced in the series. I know Loki and um, Frida, but... <sighs> Moving on. <clears throat> so Strange... <laughs> There's this really great part, right after they've explained the whole thing. Strange is like, yeah, I'm out. I came here to fix my hands. I'm not part, part of fighting a war. You notice they even directly mentioned the Avengers on this one. And that's the exact moment they're attacked, and he doesn't get a chance to actually walk out on them. Convenient timing. This then leads to a rather lengthy conflict, which I don't have much to say about. Uh, he mentions he's not a soldier. Um, they, also, they also showcase these little dimensional windows, which have little presets to separate anchors across the world, which is a nice touch. But what I really like about this section is it establishes all the pieces for him to defeat his enemies without actually killing them bit by bit. Again, he's not a soldier, and his combat style, if you can call it that, is quickly established. He actually tries to combat things regularly, and that doesn't work, just like it did last time. Instead, he uses his, his know-how to try and then work around the enemy and out, outflank them, outmaneuver them, and that leads to the cloak. 
I actually put a smiley face in my notes because the cloak's awesome. Hey, there's an axe. Let me let me get to the axe. Let me get to the axe. Anyways, <clears throat> of course, the cloak naturally and perfectly suits his power set. Nah, not his power set. His his mentality. If he needed a big gun to destroy the enemy, just brute force, then he could just go take the axe, which is actually something from the Strange Comics. Even the, the brazier is from the comics, by the way, it's a teleporting thing. But, no, he goes for the cloak, or rather, the cloak goes for him, which was also referenced earlier. Because the cloak allows him to change the rules, to bypass the enemy, to flow with the river, if you will. <clears throat> so... I do want to say really quick, I find it fascinating the way their weapons interact with each other. Because one is astral energy being projected, you know, the soul energy I mentioned earlier. And the other is a shard of dimensional discontinuity. So this is the, the dimensional discontinuity would technically be something that is infinitely strong since its position cannot be altered by physical law. In, in, or what, what I mean by that is it's, it's infinitely durable and thus could also penetrate anything infinitely in the physical realm, but astral energy isn't actually dimensional energy. Now, I'm going to talk about something really quick here, I should clarify, because the film uses the word multiverses and the word dimensions equally. It actually shouldn't, because each of these additional realities, is probably actually a better word, is a completely separate layer, a completely separate side dimension, kind of like Earth-16 or Earth-15 or Earth-600 or whatever, right? Now, Cool, you know, I'm with that. But my point is, dimensional stuff is specifically the way in which the four dimensions, or six, depending on how you define it, actually interact with each other. Thus, dimensional energy doesn't actually exist because there is no such concept. That, that's an improper metric. Whereas, soul energy does actually exist. Do you follow? Thus, what they're doing is basically temporarily and locally breaking the laws of physics, and they are being defeated, or rather defended against, by direct soul energy, which is what the sorcerers tend to use. You with me so far? Okay, cool. Just wanted to establish how it works in the film, since I know it's a little bit different from the comics. And it's cool how they maintain that consistency. Anybody who knows me knows I love consistency, and that's going to be phase three in a nutshell, with a few exceptions. So... He locks him in the crimson bands of cryotech, cryotorac, excuse me, mispronouncing it here. And there's this bit where the, the, the villain, the main villain, and Doctor Strange talk back and forth. And the villain actually says unprompted momentary specks in an indifferent universe. And notice that that really gets to him. That gets to Strange, I mean. He's just... Because that's part of why he has such an ego, isn't it? It's because he knows, or thinks he knows, how irrelevant he is, and everyone else is too. And that feeling of inconsequence has pushed him to excel as hard as he possibly can, so that he can shout out to the universe, I exist. Now, <clears throat> they, they talk about things. I actually made a quote here. This is actually a quote of my own. Life everlasting. In exchange for all that makes life worthwhile. Yeah, when we see these guys get sucked up into the dark dimension with Dormammu at the end, yeah, they're you, you enjoy your time as, uh, what do they call them, lifeless ones, or mindless ones, mindless ones. Have fun! <clears throat> so, he's in trouble, he's just been stabbed. Who does the first person he think of when he's passing out from blood loss? Let's go back to Christine. Dr. Palmer! Dr. Palmer! Now, this is actually interesting. 
he's, he gives her advice on exactly what he's been uh, hit with so she can diagnose him quicker. And she is really good at what she does, which is nice. I should point out, by the way, there's a lot of very obvious medical errors in this film. Let's just skip by that really quick. Um, now, she has a brief freakout. But you'll notice that she then just kind of takes it all in stride, which actually makes a degree of sense. Why? Medical training. That, that's just kind of how that works. When, when the, the patient is on the table, so to speak, you focus on the patient. The rest just kind of gets compartmentalized. That's the sign of a good doctor, actually. Now, <clears throat> they then have the astral fight. This is interesting. Because the astral realm is shown to directly interfere with the physical realm, but only in a vague sense. Like, you can't just grab a thing and move it, but what you can do is have a sufficient amount of shock go through it, which can affect the physical realm. And the river metaphor comes in again. Think of the astral as the river, if you will, and the physical as the rocks. Uh, so they have the big astral fight, and the electricity, this is a fun one for me, because this really helps to ground things, no pun intended. The electricity from the amperage that shocks through his physical body then channels through his astral body and allows him to literally destroy the soul of his attacker. Just gone. If you, if you didn't catch that, magic allowed technology to destroy a soul. Now... To me, that makes perfect sense because of the connection and the way things have been explained. It also, again, makes it so that magic is something that can be affected by technology and vice versa, which also makes perfect sense to me. So I just wanted to comment on that really quick before I move on. So, <clears throat> you know, he goes back to talk to her. She's like, oh, yeah, you're insane and crazy. That's, that's the shock talking. Given everything she saw, she was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. The weird thing is her dismissiveness makes no real sense, given the fact that this is a post-Avengers universe. I mean, Thor is walking around, for God's sakes. But anyways, um, they have a brief moment. He opens up to her briefly, but he's kind of in the middle of something. And so he walks back through a portal. Did you know the, the broom drop was actually unscripted? And the actor, uh, Rachel McAdams, literally was, ah! that was an actual jump. Completely out of character there. I just wanted to comment on that briefly. So Doctor Strange comments on how he wanted to do no harm. I like that. It, it kind of shows how much it bothers him killing a guy. And it helps to distinguish him from most of the other superheroes, which is good because he needs to be. He can't just be the mage. If we're being honest, we've already seen mages, at least in terms of overall approach and power set. We've seen Scarlet Witch, for God's sakes, if nothing else. So having him be someone who, again, tries to approach things laterally, rather than just head-on brute-forcing them, is kind of cool. Mordo, of course, argues for snuffing things out before they are snuffed out. You lack a spine. You lack imagination. And they're kind of both right. But then that leads to them being about to destroy the New York Sanctum. And he's like, uh, okay. Um, okay, I've got it. Mere Dimension. Unlike the astral dimension, the mirror dimension... I keep using dimension, it's really the wrong word. The mirror reality doesn't actually interact with the physical reality in any substantial way. So they are effectively completely trapped there now. Yay, except their powers are magnified here. Boo. That's never explained, by the way. So, now what? <laughs> now what's funny is Strange's plan was actually very sound. In fact, if they had 
you know gotten their rear in gear earlier, they could have just been like, okay, open them up to the mirror dimension. Excuse me, reality. They're the ones who say the mirror dimension. That's why I'm getting screwed up. Take the thing, circle our way out, close the door, they're trapped forever. And you'll notice they actually mentioned that they used the mirror reality like that earlier. The the ancient one mentioned that, so... Nice little foreshadowing. There's a lot of foreshadowing in this one. Then the ancient one goes to fight the crew. Now this is interesting in its own right, because unlike Strange, her combat style is extremely brute force. She's basically just a, I, I mean, I don't mean to sound dismissive, but she is a higher level mage, and it shows. She just casts Fire 7 when you cast Fire 3, and that's her approach. She just overwhelms the opponent, which is funny because then what happens is... Oh god, I suddenly can't think of his name. The guy played by Mad Mickelson, the way he defeats her is by sacrificing his own guy to attack her, effectively, thinking laterally. <clears throat> so... This leads to another really excellent scene. The very, very, very slowed down shot where she's stretching out a second into a thousand so she can watch the snow one more time. It's a very human scene. Notice how she, almost in a moment of weakness and empathy, reaches out just to grip his hand just because she's scared. She doesn't, she doesn't cry. Again, this is why I love Tilda Swinton in this role, because she nails this. You can tell she's afraid, she's eager, she's excited, she's nervous, she's overawed. She wants to impart as much as she can onto Strange himself. This is all hitting her like a ton of bricks, and there's this great bit, you know, the, the, you have to learn the simplest lesson of all, it's not all about you. Because even though he's shouting out to the universe... The universe doesn't care. You know who might care is the people around him. <laughs> if all you see is the universe and yourself, you have a problem, in short. But if you see all that is within, then you can start to interact with, right? She also mentions you have to break the rules sometime to move forward. And he admits, quite openly and honestly, I'm not ready. Well, that's okay. Neither was Miles. So, all right, we need to deal with this. We need to we need to defeat the enemy before they defeat. Oh, we're too late. Okay. Well, it sucks. If only we had some lateral. I've got it. Rewind time. Okay, I'm joking because this, I can't even begin to imagine how much time and effort was put into those shots of the rewind time. You know why? Because doing a rewind time shot is easy. Doing a rewind time shot while there is a forwards time stuff interacting with it, that is insane. That is much harder to do. And, oh my god, I, I have to say, I am just absolutely blown away by the way they do this, the effects of this entire sequence and the directing of it and the presentation of it is just really, 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 really good. I'm sorry for just gushing about that, but it's, it, it blew, blew me away even this time around. <sighs> Wong's there. I know, I know, natural order. Well, don't stop now. Keep going, keep going. So, this leads to... <laughs> this leads to the final battle. I like this. I'm pretty sure everyone likes this. Dormammu. Dormammu, excuse me. I have come to bargain. This really establishes, codifies Doctor Strange as different than any other Avenger 
or any other hero within the MCU that we've seen so far, because he goes up against the big evil Doom guy, and he doesn't throw an axe at it or cast magic at it or throw a building at it. You know, know what he does? He captures him in a time loop. Hi, I've come to bargain. Kill. Hi, I've come to bargain. Kill. What? See... <laughs> this, I, just, I love it, I love it he uses the river he uses the river rather than trying to fight against it and <laughs> there's this wonderful bit where he mentioned, he doesn't say this outright but you know, he, he can endure pain Doctor Strange can endure the pain of doing this because it is a worthwhile sacrifice. Him doing this ensures that the rest of life goes on. Although, actually, based on my understanding of the way time and the Avengers-verse, that is to say, MCU works, technically that's not true. What he's effectively done is halted the universe while he settles this. So it's within the realm of possibility that actually, even though he's like, I will save all of Earth, actually all of Earth wasn't doing anything. It was just sitting there waiting for this to resolve. <laughs> Let's let's not get into that though. <clears throat> Point being, as he's doing this, and as it, it's wonderful, shut me free because Dormammu can't endure the pain. In fact, I like to think Dormammu isn't even familiar with pain. Oh, he causes agony. I am evil, and I will make you suffer. Okay, what do you know of suffering? Well, it's what I cause. No, no, you personally. I don't think Dormammu literally has a personal concept of suffering until it is imbued upon him by Doctor Strange. I just, I just, that, that makes me smile. So, they get dragged off as mindless ones. There's this great bit, hey, you get, you're getting what you wanted, eternal life. You're not going to like it. <laughs> Wong laughs, because the warnings are after the spells. There's a part right towards the end where Wong says yeah better for you to not walk around wearing an infinity stone it's the first time he name drops that that is of course for the people in the audience who don't know which stone is which and are, is just being clued in and what's funny is that the way the scene is shot that is shot as if it's a big reveal moment just like they did with the ether or aether or whatever earlier on in that would be Thor 2 so the connection between this film and the rest of Phase 3 suddenly becomes much more clear. So, we have, before I get into my final thoughts, we have a quick teaser of Thor Ragnarok. Looking forward to that one. And a quick teaser for what I assume is the Multiverse of Madness with Mordo. No more sorcerers. I feel like I've heard that before, except mutants instead of sorcerers. I'm not sure what to think of that. It's a shame, though, because as weird as this may sound, I kind of got used to Mordo being a decent guy, and instead now he's just pure evil. Oh, well. We'll see what they do with him in the future. I, f I do hope they bring him back. Like I said, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is an excellent actor, and I'd love to see more of him. Let's talk about one last thing, because I'd love, as always, to hear your thoughts on something. He doesn't fix the watch. He keeps it on his wrist, but he doesn't fix it. And he doesn't fix his hands. Why? Now, I imagine some of you are like, Lord, you're an idiot. He does it because such and such. But the thing is, I have heard many theories over the years about the exact reason why he does that. And I'm just curious of yours, that's all. My personal favorite theory is that, well, I've heard one theory that it's too costly, that if he does that he would stop being a sorcerer. But the theory I like more, the one I actually enjoy and the one I adhere to, is that he doesn't need it. He doesn't need to shout to the universe anymore. Because he can still do, he can still be, and he can still help 
just in a different way. Rather than beating his way through the door, he turned to the side and went out the window, thinking laterally. If it's not obvious, I very much enjoyed this film. I hope you've enjoyed my scattered thoughts on it. I'll see you next time, guys.